Please join me in reading today's scripture, 1 John 2:28 to 3:10. With your pew Bibles, you could open to page 1022. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we may, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to First uh, John and let's pray as we look at this uh, passage together. Gracious Father, your word is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow, revealing the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And God, I pray this morning that your word would do just that, that it would penetrate to our hearts to reveal to ourselves and to you what is in there, that we might treasure Christ more deeply today. In Jesus' name, amen. On June 18, 1901, a young girl named Anastasia Nikolaevna was born to Tsar Nicholas II, who was the last emperor of Russia. Uh, and 
course, to his wife, Alexandra. As tensions grew in Russia at that time, there was a lot of unrest. It came to the point where Nicholas uh, abdicated his throne in hopes of avoiding an all-out civil war. Family was then placed under house arrest, spent time in one country house and then later another. War eventually came, nonetheless, in the form of the Bolshevik Revolution, and on July 19th, or on, in July of 1918, uh, together with her parents and her siblings and a few royal attendants, the Grand Duchess Anastasia was executed. Or was she? The story of Anastasia Romanoff has captivated imaginations for decades, uh, not merely for her royal heritage, but for the numerous rumors that she, among her family, somehow escaped execution that fateful day. Uh, there were, uh, the rumors began almost immediately, several women coming forward claiming to be Anastasia. Uh, one woman, probably the most notable among them, went under the alias of Anna Anderson and insisted on her story from 1922 all the way to her death in 1984, including a legal battle in Germany over the Romanoff inheritance that lasted until 1970. Some of the family uh, corroborated her story, family friends. Other, others uh, insisted that she was an imposter. Her story was immortalized in a, in a 1956 film, which later was the inspiration for the Disney animation that many of us are probably familiar with. But, you know, you think, think of what's stake in claiming that identity. Not merely fame and celebrity, but royal status and a claim on the Romanoff inheritance. But to make good on that claim, you have to prove that you're a true child of the king, of Nicholas II. Something that Anna Anderson was never able conclusively to do. Well, the Apostle John in our passage this morning is interested in helping us answer a similar question. How can we know whether we are true children of the heavenly king of God? And how can we recognize imposters? As we saw last week when we looked at um, 2.18 through uh, 27, not everyone who claims to have a genuine relationship with God can be trusted. There are imposters. There are false teachers who would seek to lead God's people astray. There were, in John's day, around his readers, several who were teaching a different way to know God, a way other than through Jesus, a way that, in fact, denied Jesus as God's eternal Son. They were imposters. They were actually serving the enemy in attempting to deceive God's children. And so John, in kind of picking up that argument and carrying it forward, wants to show his readers how to know if someone is a true child of God. That's what he is talking about in the beginning of our passage in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he, God, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He wants you to know whether someone's been born of God. And then he is still talking about that when he gets to the end of our passage in 3, 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, 
For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so John is interested in this question, how to tell if someone has been born of God, if they are a true child of God. Because again, think about what's at stake. Not fame or riches, but an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What's at stake, as we're going to see, is nothing less than eternal life. That's what's at stake. And so John is basically going to help us answer two questions this morning. First, why should I want to be a Christian? Why should I want to be a Christian? What is the benefit of being a true child of God? Why should I be thankful if that's true of me? Or why should I care if it's not true? What's at stake in being part of God's royal family? That's the focus of chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And then the second question is, how can I know if I really am a Christian? How can I tell if these benefits actually apply to me? Or if someone who's trying to influence me How can I tell if they're the real deal or an imposter? What are the identifying marks of a true child of God? That's his uh, concern in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And so two questions. We'll start with the first one. Why should I want to be a Christian? To be identified as the true child of Nicholas II, fame and riches for Anna Anderson, if she could prove it was true. But what is the benefit of being a true child of God? And there is a lot someone could say in answering that question. Why should someone want to be a Christian? But John points us to three specific things in the passage here. Security, love, and hope. Those are the three major benefits he's holding out before us this morning. Security. If you think about it, there are few things that undercut the quality or depth of a relationship more than insecurity. You know, we want to be loved and confident of that love. We want to know where we stand with someone. Not live in constant fear of being rejected by them. We want to uh, know that we're accepted for who we are, not for what we do or who we're supposed to be. In fact, we want it so badly at a human level that we are willing to lie and manipulate and control others in order to get that kind of security in our relationships. And yet, it's a need that cannot be met on earth. No human relationship can bear that kind of weight. They crumple under it. You can tell stories and stories of that. Many of you can testify to that. Our need for security is met only through an abiding relationship with the God who will always do what is right and never let his children down. And that is what God promises to his children who abide in Christ. If you look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, remain in him, continue to make your home in Christ 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you think about you know, the story of all of those who claim to be the royal duchess, that their lives were marked by insecurity, anxiety, fear. Will they be accepted or not? Will people believe your story? Where are you at? Would they have a place at the table and part of the inheritance? For those who truly belong to God, who are true children who have been born again of God, whose sins have been forgiven, who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, the kind of anxiety and fear and insecurity over where we stand with God and will we be accepted when we finally stand before him, that melts away through Christ. We have a security an eternal security that has been established, accomplished by our Savior. We need not cower in fear before him because our sin has been paid in full by Christ. As we sang a little bit ago, thinking of the glorified saints in in heaven, they are more happy, but they are not more secure. Even though we're not there yet, our eternal Our eternal inheritance is just as secure as those who've already gone before us into glory. That is the security for those who truly belong to God, who are his children. The confidence that we will be accepted, not because we're good enough, but because Christ has been good enough for us. As John says at the beginning of chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice that bears God's wrath against our sin in our place. And not only our own, our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate before the Father. So when we go knock on heaven's door, if you will, or when Christ returns to knock on ours, true children of God have no reason to fear. Our place in the family is secure because our relationship with God is real. It's real. And so if you want to be able to face your maker on the final day with confidence that you will be accepted into his presence, you should want to be a Christian. Only the Christian has this confidence because only Christ can deal with the sin that otherwise separates us from God. What's so amazing about that is that not a single one of us deserves it. And that brings us to the second benefit that John points out, which is love. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When John considers the truth of who he is in his life, a weak, broken sinner, a man who, along with the rest of the disciples, abandoned Christ in his hour of trial, a man who left to himself deserves the full weight of God's wrath in hell. When John considers that truth and then considers that despite that, God calls him his child, He can't help but explode with this expression of marvel and wonder in verse 1. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? 
And such we are. That's absolutely amazing. This, John tells us again and again in the book, is what real love looks like. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice. British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones shares in John's Marvel, he says, Think of what it cost him, our Lord Jesus Christ, to come into the world, to live in the world, suffering its treatment, staggering up Golgotha with that cross upon his shoulders and being nailed to the tree. Think of him dying, suffering the agony and the shame of it all in order that you and I might become children of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that we, the sons of men, might become children of God. That is absolutely, utterly amazing. John is so overwhelmed by God's love that you know, when he writes his gospel, the only way he ever refers to himself is as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Never calls himself by name. He never refers to himself as in terms of what he's accomplished for God, only that he has been loved by his Savior. That's how he thinks of himself. And the most mind-blowing expression of that love is that God would call undeserving sinners his children. Amazing. So if you want to know what it feels like to be truly deeply, loyally, unconditionally loved, you should want to be a Christian. You will never know the depths of God's love apart from knowing Christ. And if that's true, if we are secure in God's love, then we have hope. And that's the third benefit John points us to. Hope, verses 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who hopes in this way, purifies himself as he is pure. One of the absolute greatest comforts of the Christian life is knowing that God is not done with us. God is not done with us. All of the mistakes, all of the frustrations in our life, all of the things that we do that we wish we didn't do, God is not done with us. He is still at work. One of the greatest myths of the Christian life, therefore, is that we are perfect, that we've already arrived in some way. Absolutely not. So we're going to see in a moment, John calls us to obedience and righteousness. There is not a single one of us who does that perfectly, the sight of heaven. And anyone who thinks otherwise, John tells us back in chapter 1, anyone who claims to be without sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. So we live out our faith as a fallen people in a fallen world, and that means at times our faith can be really frustrating. Uh, Things don't always work the way they're supposed to. We don't always do what we know we're supposed to do. 
But we have a hope that if we are true children of God, he will finish the transformation process that he has started. We have a hope that a day will come when sin no longer messes up our relationships and our lives. We have a hope that everything about our lives that frustrates us or that disappoints us, everything that doesn't work the way it's supposed to, will finally be made right. That when we see Jesus, rather than cowering in fear, we will be changed unto glory, to the praise of God. That is an incredible, incredible hope. And so if you are disappointed in this world, disappointed in your life, if you want real, lasting change for the better, you should want to be a Christian. You should want your ID to come back positive as being a true member of God's royal family. Because only Jesus has the power to bring lasting change into our lives. There's nothing you can do, no book you can buy, no program or class you can take that is going to improve you with eternal results. Only Jesus has the power for real and lasting change in our lives. And only when we see him in the end will we be complete. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Real security, real love, real hope. Those are some of the benefits of belonging to the royal family. What John wants us to see. But who can truly claim that royal status? Who has the right to claim these kinds of benefits as belonging to them? How do I know if God's love is for me or if his, this hope is mine? That brings us to the second question that John answers this morning in verses 4 through 10. How can I know if I'm really a Christian? How can I know if I'm really a Christian? What are the identifying marks of a true child of God? How do I know if I'm part of the family, and, and on what basis can I enjoy this assurance and confidence of having a genuine relationship with God? How can I not only spot imposters, as John was concerned about last week, but truly know if I personally apply, if, if I'm a Christian? Now, if we were to ask John how to become a Christian— he would no doubt point us to the answers that he's already given in the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John, such as John 1.12. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or you think of John 3.16, that famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so, if we were to ask John, how do I become a Christian? He would point us to passages like this and say, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. He's not asking you to be good enough. He's not asking you to clean up your life and then come to God. It is through turning away from sin and taking hold of Christ in faith, following, trusting him as your Savior and King. 
But the question that John is inviting us to ask here in 1 John is slightly different. Not how to become a Christian, but how to know if I truly am one. How do I know if my faith is real or if I've just been pretending or going through the motions? And here's where the passage gets uh, a little confusing and even a little bit uncomfortable. Because when we look into the text and, and see John's description of what a true child of God looks like, and then look up in the mirror and see if we match that description, you know, it feels like we're, we're on this search for the Grand Duchess all over again. Nobody really seems to fit the bill. And that's because John's answer to the question, how can I know if I'm a Christian, is different than many of the answers we're comfortable or often give. His answer is not whether someone simply says they're a Christian or whether they go to church or whether they've been baptized or confirmed. Nor is it whether someone has prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or made a decision at some point in their life to follow the Lord. Rather, for John, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Is your life marked by turning away from sin and walking in obedience to Christ? Has the gospel that saved you actually changed you such that you look more like Christ and act more like Christ? Do you bear a family resemblance in how you live your life? These are the questions John invites us to ask in understanding to how to know if I really am a Christian. As he, as he says in 2.29, if you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And that's confusing for us uh, for several reasons, but I think most of all, because it feels like he's putting a little bit too much emphasis on our works, on our behavior, on what we do. And, and you know, we know that that's not how we became a Christian. We know that, that having a relationship with God isn't based on something we do for God, any more than having a relationship with your biological parents is based on something you did. You were born. You can't take much credit for that relationship. So it is with God. We, we receive Christ through faith, but even the faith is a gift. If you look again at John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, if, if our salvation isn't based on something we do for God, why should our assurance have anything to do with how we live our life? Well, John points us to our works, to our obedience, not because they form the basis for our salvation, but because they provide evidence for it. If you are truly born of God, born again, you will want to look like God, and you will look more and more like God, saying no to sin and yes to obedience as the Spirit of God who is in you applies the Word of God to your life. God will change His children. He will. There's a fundamental relationship between being born of God, and obeying God. 
Or to put it conversely, there is an incompatibility between pursuing Christ and pursuing sin. Such that if you have a casual, comfortable relationship with sin, if it's no big deal uh, to you, something that you pursue and honestly enjoy and aren't concerned about, then you're probably not a Christian. That's what John is saying here. And he explains that in two ways. So first, in verses 4 through 6, he shows us how the nature of sin is opposed to Christ, such that if you're pursuing this, you are against that. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And by lawlessness there, he's referring not merely to breaking God's law, but to the kind of open rebellion against God that's associated with the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2, which is another name for the Antichrist whom we talked about last week from 1 John 2. So, in other words, as, as one commentator puts it, to commit sin is thus to place oneself on the side of the devil and the Antichrist and stand in opposition to God. If you are for sin, you are against Jesus. That's how it works. As John tells us in verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. So you can't be for something that Jesus is fighting against if you are claiming to be for him. Practicing sin and abiding in Christ are incompatible. Therefore, in verse 6, John makes the very bold announcement. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That is an uncomfortable statement. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But don't worry. It gets even more uncomfortable as we keep going. The second way that John points out the incompatibility between pursuing Christ and pursuing sin by way of helping us answer this question, am I really a Christian, is by showing us the source of sinful behavior over against the source of righteous behavior. And that's what he does in verses 7 to 10. Verses 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In other words, obedience comes from God. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Sin comes from the devil. And again, that means that to to be for sin is to be against Jesus and his mission. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So you can't say, I have fellowship with Jesus when you are actively working for the other team. True children of God do not take a casual or complacent attitude towards sin. In fact, according to John, they can't. Precisely because they have been born of God. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. The Spirit of God that marks us and that regenerates us, that makes us new, abides in us, and it doesn't let us 
continue down that path. So, you know, one of the obvious questions you have to ask when you read a verse like that, is John saying that a Christian will never sin or or never sin again? Uh, Some have taken this chapter to mean that and have come up with all sorts of interesting uh, ideas. But I think the answer is obvious, not only because of what the rest of Scripture tells us, but what John told us himself in chapters 1 and 2. If anyone says they have no sin, they're deceiving themselves. And and in John chapter 2, verse 1, if we sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So John is not saying that the Christian will never sin. I think the ESV translation here captures the sense very well. What is impossible for the Christian is to make a practice of sinning, to make it your regular pursuit, to turn a deaf ear to God and carry on in the ways of the devil. If you are trying to do that, either God will stop you, bring you under heavy conviction and loving discipline, or you never belong to him in the first place. That's what John is saying. Jerry Bridges helps us understand this dynamic of why a believer cannot continue in sin. Through our union with Christ, he writes, that we no longer live in the realm of sin under its reign and practical dominion. We have, to use Paul's words, died to sin. We indeed do sin, and even our best deeds are stained with sin. But our attitude toward it is essentially different from that of an unbeliever. Our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. That's the difference John is trying to put his finger on here. Our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. That is an identifying mark of a true child of God. And so if you want to know, am I really a Christian? Here is John's conclusion in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How can I know if my faith is real, whether I'm really a Christian, whether I belong to the royal family? My assurance does not come from a decision I made once upon a time or words that I utter today. Assurance comes from a life that has been changed by the gospel, that is walking in the opposite direction of sin. If my confession of faith is true, my life will bear witness to it. That is the evidence of genuine faith. Now, we're going to, I'm going to give you a moment to pray here in just a minute. And I want to encourage you to reflect on this question. Am I really a Christian? I want all of us to reflect on that question. Not because I have you know, doubts about some of you and, or anything like that. I want you to reflect on it because if it's true... I want you to be encouraged. I want you to take heart and rejoice in the security and the love 
and the hope that belongs to you as a child of God and to rejoice in that. And if it's not true of you, I want you to be challenged to consider Jesus and to find a love and a hope and a security unlike anything this world can offer. And so as we take a moment in a, here to pray, ask God to reveal your heart. Ask yourself some questions. Does my sin against God bring grief to my heart? Is it a burden that afflicts me or a pleasure I delight in? Do I believe that my sin is worthy of the full weight of God's judgment and that but for Christ, that would be my plight? Is Christ sweet to me because of how bitter my sin tastes? Does it overwhelm me to think that someone like me could be called a child of God? Do I want to know God? Do I want to serve him? Or am I only going through the motions because that's what's expected of me? That's what I'm supposed to do. Do I enjoy righteousness? Do I enjoy doing what is right? Do I see evidence in my life that God is at work in and through me? So, as we pray, ask yourself these questions and and if your answer to all of this is yes, I recognize that I am a sinner and that apart from Christ I have nothing and that Jesus Christ is everything and that though I give in to temptation, I don't like it and I want to change and I believe God can change me and I see that he has changed me. If that's what God reveals to you, then rejoice in your relationship with God and give praise to him. Rejoice in the security and love and hope that belong to you Marvel at his love and take confidence that when he appears, you will have no need to hide. He delights in you and he loves you because you are part of the family. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and such we are. If in your prayerful reflection your answer to these questions is different, if it's quite honestly no, I don't think I'm, I'm that bad, or no, I don't want to give up my sin. I like what I'm doing, how I'm living, and I don't see any need to, to turn away from that. If, if that's what the Lord reveals to you, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, I encourage you to be honest about it. You do not have to pretend to be a Christian. You certainly don't have to pretend to come here. We love you and are thrilled that you're here. You don't have to put on a show for us. And we'll try our best not to put on a show for you. Because there is no value, there is no benefit in pretending to be something you're not. Anna Anderson gained nothing from her lifelong charade. And when Anastasia's body was finally discovered in 2007, the rest of the world knew what Anna had known all along. She was a fraud. But more importantly, until you stop pretending, you will deny yourself the opportunity to truly become a Christian. Because until you see your genuine need, you will never turn to Christ in genuine faith. 
So you don't have to pretend. Second, if you're here and you're not bothered by sin, if this is no big deal, I invite you to think again on the cross. See what Christ willingly gave for you. Consider the pain that he endured, the abuse, the suffering, and recognize that his death was that bad because our sin is that bad. His death was that bad because his love for you was that much that he was willing to go through that to rescue you from that. The only way you could be redeemed is for the eternal Son of God to die in your place, and he did it willingly. Think on the cross. Ask God to show you your sin for what it is so that you can see Jesus for who he truly is, our advocate before the Father. Turn from sin, trust in Christ, and see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So let's take a moment and reflect prayerfully on these things, and I'll, I'll close our time in a minute. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is only by your grace that we can call you Father. And we praise you for that grace, for the absolutely unimaginable privilege of being called your children. God, we praise you for Christ who makes it possible through his life, his death, his resurrection in our place. Lord, would you reveal our hearts and encourage your children to take confidence in your love and the hope that we have in you that you are not finished with us. May we never cease to marvel at the privilege of relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those among us who are wrestling this morning with what we've seen as as you reveal sin in our hearts and lives and, and what that means for our relationship with you. Lord, for those who truly know you but are finding themselves weighed down by guilt and shame, remind them that their debt has been paid in full. Encourage their hearts with the freedom that comes from the gospel and give them confidence in your presence that they are accepted not because of what they do but because what you have done for them. For those who are coming to terms, Lord, with the idea that they might not really be a Christian or, or maybe uh, for those who whom this morning simply confirmed what they knew all along, God, I ask for grace. Open eyes to see sin for what it is, that their eyes might be open to see Christ for who He is in all of His love and all of His beauty. Give them faith to be born again, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. May all of our lives, God, be marked by the truth of Your 
gospel.